everyone and welcome to the next episode of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange, we like to start by asking, what are you thinking? And this week, we're going to be chatting to Rosie Allister. Rosie is a vet, but has spent her career focusing on uh, mental health and suicide prevention within the veterinary profession. She manages the VetLife Helpline and has won many an accolade along the way. So just to introduce myself, my name is Scott. I'm one of the founders of VTX and I'm a, a European and Royal College recognised specialist in small animal internal medicine. And as always, I am joined by my bestest friend and podcast producer, Karen. Okay, so Rosie, thanks so much for um, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, we're really excited to to have you on. I I think most people will kind of know you uh, for the work you've done, you know, uh, in the veterinary sector with mental health and and well being and, and all these different things. Just just so people are clear, you did start life as a as a vet as we know and love. Um, so just tell us a little bit about the the start of your kind of veterinary career. Yeah, absolutely. So like a lot of people, I've had quite an interesting veterinary career that's taken some surprising turns and I've ended up in a place that I didn't expect to end up, but I'm incredibly happy in. So, And I so often feel that my job is one of the best ones in the veterinary industry because I have this amazing privilege of working with people on VetLife Helpline, working with other people who care about vets and just the amazing sense of care that you get from people who volunteer to help with help other people in the veterinary community is just fantastic and just keeps you going on the bad days for sure but yeah I didn't expect to end up here at all so at the start of my career I started out with a bit of an interest in sort of quantitative epidemiology um and what, I, I, what is that <laughs> for, for those at home <laughs> numbers numbers okay <laughs> like okay. fancy things <laughs> Um, so I did a bit of that and I did that to do with horses and anaesthesia at the very start of my career and then I went on to do a study looking at sleeping sickness um, in um, and sort of vaccine stuff around sleeping sickness and immunity so molecular epidemiology so quite lab based but also looking at um, zoonotic and infectious diseases um, so and then I, I spent time in clinical practice, which I love and I really love clinical practice. I'm so and I was so fortunate to work alongside amazing teams when I was in practice, as well as some more difficult situations as well. And I still keep okay. a bit of clinical practice going. So I volunteer with All Four Paws Clinic, um, which does um, care for people who are homeless or vulnerably housed as pets, which I, I really, really enjoy it. Did you go into vet school? thinking like any of this sleeping sickness epidemiology all these words I don't even understand not at all I went into it thinking clinical practice that was all I thought about when I thought about that I didn't really know this other stuff was around yeah and also um, I suppose part of the career choices I've made have been shaped through experiences I've had um, and through things that I didn't know were issues that became when I realized about them I thought gosh this is really important and I want to be involved in doing something about this so what was the first, that's really interesting, what was the first, can you think of the moment where you realised that there was a problem and that you actually wanted to be part of the change or the, the solution to that problem? Sure, so it was actually when I was seeing practice before that school um, sort of came into my awareness because the a vet at the practice where I used to see practice as a teenager died by suicide and they died by suicide in the practice and so I was sort of involved in the immediate aftermath of that and as a teenager, I think 
you um, sort of start to process that. But then um, when I was at vet school, we also lost a lecturer to suicide when I was in my fourth year and it was somebody who, was, who we had been working quite closely with. And I think one of the things for me at that point, it was a bit of a turning point for me and starting to think about, well, what, what can we do to help? Um, you know, because these are amazing people and we want, I wanted to find a way to enable amazing people who are struggling to stay, really. Um, that was what I wanted to do and that's what drives me and so, I, um, I, I started to think about it then and I started volunteering with Samaritans as soon as I finished back school, so 2005. And, um, and initially I thought that was the route that I was going to take. I was just kind of volunteer with Samaritans outside of my other work. Um, but then I became involved with VetLife a couple of years later on the helpline and then as an area rep um, supporting people. And I did that as a volunteer for a long time. And I suppose I became aware of the incredible power of people connecting with other people. And how sometimes it is easier for veterinary nurses and for vets and for other people who work in veterinary practices or veterinary community to speak to somebody who gets part of what they're going through. And there's an incredible power in that. And it's an incredible privilege as well in terms of somebody trusting you with stuff that they possibly haven't said to anybody else. And so that was a big motivator for me. And I think having seen the difference that can make, um, that stuff became more and more of what I did. So. Um, while I was in practice, I started um, looking into the other, other things about how I could do more, particularly around suicide prevention, but also around supporting people who are struggling um, and trying to prevent people from getting to the stage where things are so bad that they can't see other options. So trying to support people much earlier um, and trying to reduce that kind of burden of suffering that so many of us are familiar with at different points in our career. So thinking about how we can do that. Um, and so I did... A master's in public health research but specialising in mental health um, at the medical school in Edinburgh which was great because it was working with, with lots of interdisciplinary people and I looked at veterinary student mental health so that was back in 2007-2008 and then having started in research about veterinary mental health I started realising there's quite a lot that we don't know and so another surprising turn for me was moving from completely quantitative research background to completely qualitative social research so interviews and I did a big um, cohort study following the same people over time from just before graduation till just after graduation um, and that was again a massive privilege because you have people a really tricky career time putting time into a study because they either want to help or they want to know more about what goes well for people and what doesn't and so that study took up um, another point of my career and that was my PhD um, that's now finished and so it's thinking about well how can we integrate some of that knowledge from research and some of the stuff that people gift to us by taking part in research how can we integrate that into actually making changes because I suppose where I find research particularly interesting is the point of implementation so we know this now what can we do and how can we change it yeah and that's really that that's a, that's so interesting isn't it just for for those listening i think just to to kind of come back to the fundamental of this we suicide is obviously not good and you know regardless of what you uh, job you do but can you give us just some of the kind of statistics about the suicide within the veterinary profession and and why we've we're even more concerned about the uh, that within our profession Sure. So there's been concerns around the rates of suicide among veterinary surgeons for many, many years. Um, and um, 
it's quite slightly difficult to interpret the numbers around veterinary suicide. They have changed over the years, um, but it's difficult to tell how much because um, because of some quite complicated things to do with statistics and to do with the number of vets in the UK and to do with the way that national suicide statistics mm -hmm. are collated. However, um, sort of the headline things are that we think that vets in the UK are three to four times more likely to die by suicide than the general population. We don't have good figures on veterinary nurses, but if you look at studies that have been done very recently in the United States, veterinary technicians are at very high risk of completed suicide, um, perhaps even greater than veterinary surgeons. And so there is a big concern. And we also obviously having supported um, a lot of veterinary nurses who are struggling and having supported practices that have lost veterinary nurses to suicide. Um, you know, we're really aware of that as a problem as well. And I'm very much of the view that we go on and we sort out interventions without waiting for that research to happen about what the rates are in the UK. I think you're right. I think that these are kind of very headliney things, aren't they? But I suppose it's the kind of thing that that's the it grabs that grabs a bit of attention though as well. It's but I, I understand it's kind of you know it's complex. Do you have any feeling? Do you have any ability to say why that might be? Is there any way that you can? Do we know that? Do you, do you have any feel for that? Yeah, sure. So there's been a lot of sort of discussion about it. Um, there's been bits of research that have pointed towards it. The key things that usually affect occupational suicide rates, so suicide rates that are um, unusual um, or predicted a bit by occupation, are, are several things. Um, one is about what's called access to means, um, which is, is actually whether people, through the nature of their job, have access to different methods of suicide that people might not have in the general population. And that is certainly the case with um, the veterinary industry and perhaps more so than a lot of other jobs. However, that on its own is not usually enough because there are industries where people have that kind of access and there aren't elevated suicide rates. So what we think is going on in vet is, is partly that. Um, also a big thing about reluctance to seek help. And that's not just reluctance as in it's people not wanting to it's people actually trying and experiencing barriers and sometimes having completely rational understandable reluctance because they haven't had a good experience or because they're worried about discrimination or because they're worried about potential impact on career and the reality is that although we could say to people forever well you just need to ask for help sometimes people do have bad experiences and so we need to make it safe for people to ask for help we have things to change there as well there's also sometimes discussion about perhaps you know um are there issues to do with career structure are there issues to do with workplace environments um, we know that if work is going well for people and has lots of meaning and has good job satisfaction work is good for your mental health however if work is a toxic environment that can be very bad for mental health in working age adults so we know that's potentially an issue there's sometimes also discussion of um, the people who are attracted into the veterinary industry is there something about a sort of what you might consider a risky phenotype in terms of people who are being attracted and i think the way we need to think about that is very carefully because sometimes when people start talking about that people start talking about screening well how do we sort of you know stop people who might be at risk from getting that is not the way to think about this i mean it's potentially unlawful but also it actually doesn't work because we know that in industries like ours if you ask people to fit a certain type they will find a way to fit it in order to, to get in because we we care so much and we're so motivated and we want to do this thing so actually there's good evidence that suggests that money spent on screening is poorly spent and actually it's much better spent on enabling safe access to support so that's where our focus needs to be from my own research i would say 
there is a big issue um, among certain groups um, and this comes up in other research as well. So we know that certain groups are more at risk of psychological distress, which can obviously predispose to other types of risk. And for me, um, something that hasn't been looked at very much in terms of its link to risk of poor outcomes in terms of mental health, in terms of suicide risk, is actually around our professional identity and our sense of what it is to be a veterinary professional, whether that's a veterinary surgeon or a veterinary nurse. Um, and sometimes the way that we are culturized into vet and the values that we have, some of that is positive, but a lot of it is not positive for our well-being and for our mental health. And so um, the kind of the interesting thing for me is, well, how do we offer alternative identities to people so that you can be a, a vet or a veterinary nurse in a healthier way, um, in a way that is better for you and for your well-being and for your mental health? So you can still have this great career and do this amazing work, um, but it doesn't need to hurt you. And that's something that's really interesting to me in research. It's hard, it's hard though. It doesn't need to hurt you. And I think that's such an interesting thing to say because and I'm trying as you're talking it's so hard because I'm trying to think like you know of all the people that we speak to not just through the podcast but just people that I speak to in the workplace and so many people are struggling in so many different ways it's almost like it's you know trying to unravel it but I mean <laughs> thank god that you're it's your job and not mine but you know you talk I remember you know I spoke to to a therapist earlier on this year um a cognitive behavioral therapist and we talked about this kind of you know this tight I felt you know this kind of tight ball of string and it, there's so many different parts to the problem and it's it's impossible to even know where to start to unravel it do you know what I mean because some days it's to do with clients some days it's to do with colleagues some days it's to do with management some days it's to do with the fact it's a Tuesday like I don't like I don't do you know what I mean like it's so hard to understand that and and, and I suppose my question is, well, where do we, where do you even start? Where do you even start to understand which, where to help and what to do? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And I suppose there's something really important what you said as well about that applies for everybody and often gets forgotten when we have these kind of conversations, which is that there is a huge amount of complexity. And although sometimes, particularly some of the media like to kind of say this story of oh, all these difficulties are caused by this one factor. There is not one factor. Um, there are lots of factors and that is always the case. Um, however, um, I suppose often for us, one thing that I find quite helpful when I'm sort of training our volunteers on that life, or I'm talking with people is to say that um, just because you can't do everything doesn't mean you shouldn't do something. So the idea that it is worth always doing something um, help because even though it might seem like an overwhelming problem actually it's often the case that when someone is overwhelmed and their resources are so stretched that they feel that they can't cope even if you can just take that down in percentage points for somebody so even if you can just get it that it's more tolerable in the moment right now um, then they can often find a route to fix some of those other things and it, it can get better with time and often it's about holding on to hope with somebody for as long as it takes until they can see the way through um, and that can take a long time and I think one of the things that people sometimes struggle with in our industry is this sense of well if I could have fixed it by now I would have and actually it can take a long time and we need to be patient and we need to be there and we can get quite frustrated wanting a quick fix and sometimes quick fixes are difficult um, and we need that patience. I think that's so that again I keep saying that's so interesting I mean it is interesting that's why I say it um <laughs> you make so many good points there I think recently for me I've been thinking about 
like a th- there's a threshold you know and and sometimes you're close to the threshold and sometimes you're down here somewhere and actually I feel a lot of us and, and this is not you know I, I speak we're speaking about vets and vet professionals but you know Karen and I we've had conversations about this regardless of kind of what your job is and what you're doing you know I think you know sometimes you're close to that threshold and it really doesn't take very much to just tip tip you over um tip you over the edge um, and also what you said there was was fascinating about you know if I was if it was fixable then I would have fixed it by now and I think that's like I feel that all the time I'm like oh I I'm the, you know, I must be the problem. I'm the mental one. It's not really this job or that job. It's just the fact that I'm not very good at coping with any of this. Um, and actually it's, <laughs> as we've talked about many times, Karen, you know, the, it feels like the, 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 the problems are worsening with time rather than getting better, but we are trying to always find it. We're always trying to find a way through, but I think that's maybe really useful for people. This is not something that's going to be okay in an instant this is going to take a lot of time um but that can often be hard to see though that's hard to see through that do you know what I mean because that's a long journey and sometimes when you're not able to see the end that can be challenging do you not think I do I do I think it's incredibly hard and I think it's it's an incredible ask of people who are going through a difficult time to say hey I know that it doesn't feel like it right now and I know that you can't see it but I hope that you can trust somebody else who believes in this for you enough to let them walk with you through it. And that's effectively what we often end up doing at VetLife and um, in other types of support as well, is, is staying with somebody and exploring the options and finding ways through. And it can be an incremental process of very small steps, but it does get better. And we see it get better for people over time. And I suppose that's one of the, again, the huge privileges of being involved in support is that you do see people who've had incre- been through incredible things and you see the strength that they have and you see them survive it and that is uh immensely i suppose encouraging and then it's trying to hold on to part of that hope for other people who are in that situation who can't see it right now um sometimes that's you know it is asking a huge amount of people but the strength that people have to reach out for help there is a part of them that also has the strength to get through it at that time and that's something you know we really believe in so with vet life you offer confidential uh support for people um through primarily a telephone service um and are you are obviously very involved in in vet life as an organization but are you still um potentially at the end of the phone as well are you still involved in that part of it yeah absolutely so um I help to manage the VetLife helpline now and have done for a, number, for a few years now. Um, but I also still um, volunteer on the line. I think it's really important to still have that connection to that and I enjoy doing that. Um, I also still support via the email service. So about around about a third to a half of our calls are on the phone and the rest are on email. So email is actually more popular than phone now. I say email, but actually it's a secure web messaging platform. And the reason we use that is because Um, We know that people find it really hard to talk about some stuff that's difficult. And so we actually encrypt people's email addresses so we can't see them. So people are not only confidential, but it can also be totally anonymous. So you can make up a name and call yourself Batman and that's fine by us. You know, it's um, 
which hopefully gives people a bit more confidence and we know that that medium works better for some people in writing and so we're very much there for that as well and um, as well as the helpline service VetLife also does have other services so we have a service called VetLife Health Support which provides professional mental health help to vets veterinary nurses student vets and student veterinary nurses who have unmet mental health needs um, and that's interpreted quite broadly um, and we set it up knowing what was what we felt over many years was kind of missing um, in the veterinary industry so one of the sort of groups that we set the service up for was there are quite a large number of people who get in contact with us who maybe have concerns about their mental health or worries about their mental health but are finding it very difficult or sometimes impossible to go and talk to a medical professional about it or a therapist um, because they have worries that well, what if this gets on my medical records or what if people think that I'm wasting their time or you know I just don't have time to do it I all of those reasons and so actually we've set up this service that's slightly separate from that it's a bit like a private service but we it's free for people to access if we refer them through we we pay for it as a charity and it provides them with a mental health assessment with a skilled mental health professional by phone and once they've had that assessment, they'll come up with a plan with the person about what kind of thing might help them. Um, and it may well be that what they recommend is sort of NHS based care, but they will then help to advocate for the person to access that care and they'll work with them if they're struggling to access that or finding it difficult. And the person's in control of that process too, which um, so it's kind of that for that group of people, but also for a big group of people who we know try to reach out for help often more than once and for whatever reason aren't able to access it so we all know that mental health services do some incredible work but sometimes there are gaps and real people can fall through those gaps and we wanted to create a bit of a safety net for some of the people that we could in our industry to make sure they weren't falling through those gaps so that service can also sort of operate in that kind of situation as well where maybe somebody has a mental health diagnosis already and has been looking for help and hasn't been able to find the right thing we can help sometimes in those cases too so um it's it's slightly niche work, but we think it's really important work. Really, God, really important. Do you feel that the type of calls that you're getting um, and the types of problems that people have has changed because of coronavirus? Yeah, absolutely. So we saw a big spike in our calls in March, April. Um, we actually had more calls than we've ever had before across those two months. Um, and we've had a busier year than we've ever had before so far this year. We've already had more calls this year than we had in the last calendar year. Um, and we're only in November. So um, it's definitely been busier and quite significantly busier. But it's not just that the types of calls have been different. So early on, a lot of that spike was around people who were perhaps self-employed didn't have secure employment uh, business owners worried about how they pay their staff people getting used to all of the changes we've also had a lot of contact from vet students and veterinary nursing students worried about studies about placements about ems um, and i would say that's starting to surface again particularly worries about ems and placements um, people are really looking for certainty and um, and a bit of security around what their what's expected of them and what they can achieve and that is starting to be an anxiety for people again we also had a lot of contact from locums and we've had that right through um, having to change working patterns we've had people who've been bereaved by covid um, we've had practices that have been very affected by covid we've had people whose life plans have changed um, it's been a it's been a massive issue and i suppose one of the issues that we're facing as a society is that this is an incredibly difficult time and unprecedented is overused as a word this year but it is unprecedented and and so it's normal right now to be feeling anxious and to be feeling worried and to be finding things hard and it would actually be a bit 
abnormal not to be finding things hard amidst all of the, what's been happening in the world and not to feel sad quite often about things and so part of I think what we can sometimes support people with is helping them to figure out well is this a normal reaction to an abnormal situation or am I struggling so much that it's affecting me every single day and I'm not able to do the things I need to do every day I'm not able to function and actually do I need a bit of professional support with this so is this kind of level of anxiety or level of worry that I have within what everyone's experiencing at the moment and it's absolutely valid to seek support if you are doing that because that's how you get through this you don't get through this kind of thing on your own you get through it together or is it actually something that I could potentially benefit from some professional support and maybe some skills to work through these kinds of things or other types of treatment and help and and there's people I think with those kinds of concerns as well who just are you know finding working out that balance difficult and so sometimes it does help to talk through there's also just the constant changes at work and I think you know the veterinary industry has been incredible this year hasn't it in terms of the way that professions have responded to all of the changes that have been demanded of them you know sometimes your working practices can be completely different one morning from how they were last night you know it's just it's varied so much and the way that people have adapted has been incredible but it's also exhausting it's exhausting. absolutely exhausting yeah. to be doing that that's so true yeah that's so true and everybody is tired. Everyone is tired. And I think, like you said earlier, Scott, it's, it raises that thing that people would threshold for, hey, this is too much. We're all much closer to that. And on any given day, lots of us could potentially meet that threshold at the moment. And so it's thinking about, well, how do we get through this together? And how do we, where we can make this better for people? And one of the key things that is always advised in this kind of situation, and has been advised for healthcare workers working in um, epidemics before, where there's serious diseases and risk, is that people get time to decompress and so they get a proper break away from sort of frontline situations and that is hard in our um, in our professions to do that because we don't generally have staffing levels that would permit that so it's challenging to think about well how do I give staff time to decompress or how do I get time to decompress myself and not just decompression it's other things as well so it's rotating people away from the highest pressure roles which again our industry isn't really set up that well to do to rotate people in and out of the most challenging roles which you know um, sometimes are those that are client facing sometimes are those that are leadership roles you know to get that kind of rotation is very difficult um, and there's also something really important as well about acknowledging and thanking people um, so that process of acknowledgement and thank hugely important and again it's challenging to get right in our professions and so it's really important that we're thinking at the moment about how we acknowledge what people have done what they've achieved this year and how do we thank them and also how do we give them a sense a space to make sense of it because making sense so the thing that's called sense making and reviewing it is something that's really important when you've been through something difficult so this isn't necessarily therapy it's just a space where you can talk and process stuff and normally in our day-to-day -day lives in veterinary work of different types you often do that in kind of informal peer-to-peer -peer conversations that you have in the corridor you know whether it's a bit of banter about something that's gone on whether it's over coffee um whether it's you know a message with someone and it's it's very difficult because now I suppose in the pandemic so many of our relations with other people are quite transactional because we're trying to distance from other people we, we talk but we set up a time to talk about a specific thing we don't bump into each other and and just debrief about a case that we've just seen or you know run something past someone really quickly or so it's trying to think about well how can we create those opportunities to connect with peers and to share some of this load that we're all carrying um, in a perhaps a less transactional way or a space where we can make sense of it that feels safe and I think one of the things in our industry that we see all the time 
of vet life pretty much almost every call is people worrying about telling others because they feel they'll be burdening them so it's not always a sense of shame or anything like that that they're struggling it's often just well I don't want to be a burden on anybody and it's 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 so sad because when you talk to people and you say well if it was your friend who was struggling or your colleague would you want them to tell you I've, I've never had anybody say no everybody would want their friend or colleague to tell them and yet we think that we're protecting our friends and colleagues by not telling them and actually we're we're taking away an opportunity to help um, and we're not giving them that and it's quite hard to get through when you're feeling that bad you do feel like you're a burden one of the things that came up in my research with new grads was around them feeling a burden on um on their practices um, when they started work and this was even pre-covid so people felt that as a new graduate and in the first few years in practice they were a burden and therefore they had to put up with all kinds of things that they shouldn't have had to put up with because they had a perception they weren't making money for the practice or they had a perception everyone was doing them a favor really or they weren't really good enough and it's a real difficulty because if you have that sense that i don't deserve this help or i'm not good enough it it potentially sets you up for finding it difficult to ask for help, feeling like a burden if you need help, feeling like you don't fit in, feeling like um, you don't deserve it. There's all kinds of things that actually cause quite quite difficult behaviours that are really, really difficult for you to get help. And, and also, I think having feeling like a burden is a burden yes like that's a burden like <laughs> You're right. to, to have to that go through every yeah but it's true isn't it imagine every day just thinking oh god here i go again i'm a pain in the arse you know look at me not making any money look at me being crap at this look at me being crap at that like that's gonna totally and utterly drag you down as well um i wanted to pick up just in a couple of things that you said um it, it, you're it's almost like you've read my mind because um I was just actually speaking to a colleague um, before we, we came on this call uh, just now. And I think for me, the the two major things that are uh, an issue at the moment are th- a feeling of, of clinical practice being very thankless. Like, and that's not necessarily, I'm not being critical of all managers out there um, who are not thanking us enough, but but the, the job feels very thankless and that almost in itself is completely soul destroying. Um, and I love this. I'm gonna. I love this idea, and I've never really heard of this before. Um, of 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 rotating from some of these really difficult roles, this kind of rotation idea, and actually that's one of the other things that I have really struggled with is that we're that I feel very much at the front line, and being absolutely kind of battered, um, on a daily basis, and that is an amazingly brilliant idea that we should definitely all take on board right now. I did a I did a couple of shifts at um at Glasgow University actually this week which was not client facing it was more kind of teaching and that was exactly what I needed. Just changing gear, shifting a little bit of of direction and that has done amazing things for my soul. But also this this time to make sense of it. This is the other thing that I love and and I suppose for me, the only thing that, not the only thing, but one of the things that's kept me sane during all of this a bit is actually, Karen, doing this podcast because we get to, actually, this is probably the only time, apart from when I go to the toilet, like this is the only time <laughs> that we're that we're just allowed to talk and, and be kind of quite open. And otherwise, um, it's just, 
the usual. Do you know what I mean? So actually, in many ways, this has been very therapeutic for me, thank God. Um, so I think all of that is, I just think some really good um, points there that we can, um, well, hopefully, I'm sure resonate with people and, and uh, potentially people can actually make some changes there that are really important. I wanted to um I wanted to ask you about a couple of other things if that was okay. I don't I, I don't want to um embarrass you. Um but I do want to mention uh, uh some of your accolades um if that's okay. Um not only all of those uh, medals that we can see hanging up. Uh, I want to tell the listener can we tell the listeners about the rainbow medals is that okay? Um so we're we're recording we're recording this on Zoom and and you can see uh, behind Rosie um all the medals from I presume runs that you've been on but she's ordered them all so that they are in the colours of the rainbow which is spectacular. Yeah. How long did that take you to do that? <laughs> it made me very happy when I did it. Though, so. And it makes me happy every time I because for me there is something uh, about like. It, it, I love running. Running is like my place where I go to think about things, where I go to remind myself what I love doing. I often go out with my dog or with a friend, which has been hard in lockdown, but we found ways to do it. So I've started going running with, um, off, I run mostly off road. So I'm lucky I can run with an earphone in and I run with a friend on the phone and we just chat right. still. So even though we're apart, we can still talk. And actually, if you've got a friend who you're close enough to that it doesn't matter that you're heavy breathing down the phone it's all fine um so so yeah we have a really nice long chat you, so hold on so just to, so you're running up arthur's seat with a pat with a friend on the phone i'm running up arthur's seat with an earphone in chatting to my friend <laughs> he's out running as well. i can't even run and like have a conversation for a few seconds that's hard you well, you're obviously very fit. Never mind, put Arthur's seat in there. I know. I think Karen. Yeah. Mostly, I um, I mostly phone Karen when I'm in the toilet, <laughs> driving or in the toilet or eating. Yeah. So not running ever, actually, Karen. Yeah, that's pretty much when I get a phone call. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, tell us about your dog who uh, features quite heavily on your social media. Um, obviously, the dog is an important part of life. Yes, she is. So I have a five-year-old Weimaraner called Maisie, who is it's basically I'm her PA on my social media accounts. Like, I often feel bad because <laughs> I just join my social media accounts looking for like great insights and wisdom and they just get dog pictures. But again, it's, um, yeah, she's, she's a great joy in my life and very good company and is living her best life right now. I think she's possibly one of the only ones who is. She's delighted that I'm often at home and on Zoom and she's got very familiar with having her squeaky toys confiscated and getting given biscuits so it's good <laughs> good no she's beautiful um so yes i wanted to mention your uh, accolades and most recently the rcvs um, impact award is that right um which um was very exciting um do you want to tell us a wee bit about that and and why you well i mean i'm sure we we can already tell why you want it but just tell us a little bit about that yeah well so amidst this kind of devastating difficult year i I was immensely surprised, I would say, <laughs> um, and privileged that I received the RCVS Impact Award and the BVA Chiron Award, um, which is, um, I, I totally didn't see any of that coming. And I suppose I'm very grateful to the people who nominated me or considered me for those awards. But I think it also is one of those things that I, it does reflect so much on how much people care about veterinary mental health and how important people realize it is. and it reflects on, I suppose, as well, that the role that 
all of the people who are involved in pet life or in the research that I've done um, and in other aspects of the work that I do um, with practices and elsewhere that they recognize the importance of it so it is a huge privilege but it's also a challenge isn't it because you know people say you're having an impact and often in my work you end up reflecting gosh we've achieved something but we have not achieved enough and there's you know been some very very tragic reminders of that this year and so there is a real motivation to keep going with it um so to say thank you and to be grateful and and also to keep going i suppose one of the one of the highlights for me of receiving an award was um actually that gratefulness and taking it not as an opportunity to be embarrassed which naturally i kind of am by that kind of thing um but actually an opportunity to reconnect with people who helped me through my career because i think we all have people at some points because um, i got this thing when i got the invitation who would you like to invite to the virtual ceremony and i think i must have sent them the longest list they've ever had i mean they played along and they invited them so i was very grateful but just thinking about well who can i reconnect with oh. perhaps i've lost touch and it was just so wonderful reconnecting with people who you'd been inspired by or who've mentored you at different times and I thought some of them wouldn't remember me but they did and yeah so it was it was great reconnecting with those people and actually stopping to thank the people who support me day to day right now it, it was a wonderful opportunity to do that. It was interesting you know obviously there's there's work as you said there's work to do I wonder do you I'm not you know clearly the 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 the, the the mental health of like, we're not putting the mental health of the profession on your shoulders but do you ever feel a sort of degree of kind of responsibility for how this is progressing from a kind of do you do you feel do you ever feel a wee bit burned burdened by that does that ever sit on your shoulder a bit and affect you I think I'm really fortunate because um I'm well supported and I haven't always been well supported in my career I've had really tough times um, but I am really well supported and so when difficult stuff comes I reach out to other people and they walk with me through it and I am so fortunate in having that and I think that for me is a reminder about um, how important it is that Helpline is there for people who maybe aren't don't have that around them or can't just reach out or have that available and so it's so important that we can provide that for people but yeah I have tough times as well not so much about worrying about the burden of of stuff but sometimes I think one of the things that really affects me quite deeply is injustice and inequality and when I see discrimination in our profession I find that very difficult to sit with and not act upon and there is discrimination in our profession and I know that it would be easier to tell a story around mental health that people should ask for help and it will be there that it would not be a complete Story, that would be an incomplete account of what happens to people because sometimes people do ask for help and it's not available. Sometimes people experience problems because of discrimination. So that underlies a lot of the difficulties that people experience and those are preventable, you know, and we should not be tolerating that. And that can be frustrating to sit with and to have my mantra of not being able to fix everything because I want to fix it. And that can drive me and that is, it can be a good thing and a bad thing because it can lead you to working a lot and that kind of thing as well. So, yeah. yeah. I think we, we're we we're on the same page there. And I think I, I think we've we've spoken about this before, but I, I definitely, I think 
injustice. I look, you know, I, that's a very, very frustrating thing to witness, isn't it? You know, and and like you said, discrimination. That's a that's hard. And I, I I'm glad you said it because I sometimes just feel like this angry little Scottish man about it all and get all worked up, you know. And and it's hard sometimes because you don't always know how to how to kind of deal with that. Can you give us a sort of can you give us an example like of 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 um that kind of discrimination that you're you're still seeing uh in the profession today sure there's lots of it around unfortunately um so i still see discrimination against certain people with certain mental health problems so whilst um some mental health problems may be much more accepted i'm not sure that stigma against um people with severe and enduring mental illness has decreased very much or people who self-harm or sometimes people who've attempted suicide so i know um, of situations where people have attempted suicide and that's led to disciplinary or conduct stuff and that should never be the case that that happens to everybody those kinds of things shouldn't happen and we should not allow space for that kind of thing in our profession um, there's also cases of one of the things if you look at research on what causes staff who are working in epidemic stress um, in healthcare and um, people who experience discrimination in the workplace, particularly racial discrimination, discrimination around sexuality, are more likely to experience difficulties during pandemics as well, because those people are just um, under more difficult conditions already. So when things get harder, it's even harder for them. And so those things are really important that we address those because we know that those um, inequalities do exist and we need to do something about them. I've also experienced discrimination myself around disability that had a very profound effect on my own career and it took me a long time to kind of come to terms with. And I suppose the challenge for me there was that I suppose coming to terms with my own naivety before I experienced that, that there's this profession that I love and that I'm dedicating my life to and that I care so much about the people in it. And yet when I was going through a difficult time, um, I did experience disability discrimination and it did nearly end my career. And, and having had that experience, it's just so, um, I think the thing that was difficult for me to come to terms with was how didn't I see this? until I was in this situation because I knew that things happened but I did not know that things were as bad things could be as bad as they were and so I think for me part of that is well how do we how do we fix these really extreme and these bad situations so that it doesn't happen to anybody else and can that be a legacy that you know people who have um who are you know in the profession at the moment and are in leadership positions can it be a legacy of change for us that we actually leave a better profession than we found um, and i hope that we can do that and i think it's really important that we do yeah no absolutely do you think that the veterinary profession is kind i think it often can be kind but i've seen i've seen times when it isn't and i hear about a lot of times when it isn't and sometimes that's because um people are hurting themselves and people are struggling but sometimes it's for reasons that are very hard to understand and I think one of the things for me going through an immense difficulty was actually coming to terms with the fact I, I don't think I'm ever going to understand the motivation of some of the difficult things that happened to me um, I can't understand it but I can change it from happening to anybody else and that's kind of where I found my position of um, sense making from it that I can affect the future but I'm I'm not going to understand what caused this. I think there is huge kindness in the profession and I have a bit of a biased view because I get to support and encourage 70 volunteers who volunteer to give up their free time to support other people in the veterinary community. I spent the weekend doing initial training for people who are wanting to join Helpline and such an amazing group of people, so enthusiastic, just 
brilliant. Just so much raw care and compassion and wanting to help. And it's just so brilliant to see that. But there's also the reality that we know that the reason we get 10 to 14 people contacting Helpline per day is partly because not everybody's experiencing that. And so it's thinking about how can we infiltrate that into other spaces where it's not occurring already? And how can we support people to, to be kind? I think also an aspect of kindness that we're not good at as a profession is kindness to ourselves and self-compassion. And I've definitely not always been good at this, but actually kindness is relational and it's about accepting kindness as well. And that's something we're not, we struggle with sometimes. We're sometimes a lot better at being kind and caring about others than we are about ourselves. And sometimes the expectations we put on ourselves are impossible and they're not something that we would expect of anybody else. And um, we can uh, go through a lot of suffering because of the expectations we have of ourselves. Um, and I think it's important for the industry to sort of, and for professionals in the industry to consider how we could turn that around and say, how can we find a space for more self-kindness mm. and more self-compassion? No, it's so true. I mean, there's obviously there's still so much to do, and but I think it's turning that back in yourself. I think it's so important and being kind to yourself is, is, is just fundamental. Um, can I ask who inspires you? This is a great question. Um, genuinely the people who inspire me it's a combination of the people who survive the difficult things so it's the people who are struggling and who and to keep going every day when it's hard and they find a way to keep going those people inspire me because and what they endure and what they get through and what pretty much nobody sees and sometimes we get a little glimpse of it a little moment a snapshot on helpline and the amount that they survive is that some people survive is incredible and the strength that's there so that is something that gives me real hope um, for those people um even though they can't see it but also for everyone else and also the helpline volunteers um who just are an amazing group of people i'm also lucky in that i've had some amazing kind of role models in my life who are um you know very uh, caring compassionate individuals who manage to combine that compassion with you know having standards and being professional and having ethics and having that kind of sense of meaning in their work and i suppose that's really important to me as well um, i hope some of them are listening i think that's really and i hope they, they hear that, that 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 that's amazing that actually their strength is is so inspiring i think that's that's pretty special um if you were to do this all again back in those liverpool days would you go to vet school again that's a really good question um it's not one i've ever thought about um i would i would um i do you know this has been a tough journey for me i've had very very tough times that it's probably not a space to speak about today but you know I've had really tough times but I love this profession and I love the people in it and I have real hope for us being able to get to a place where um, more of us can have really good well-being and really good mental health in our work and I know that some people are at that already and I just want to make that available to more people um, in our workspace and more support available for people I think I would um, I think I would want to give myself less of a hard time and to be less terrified when things started to go wrong for me um, relating to disability because I think for me I had this real sense for a while that if I wasn't doing solely clinical practice um, then I wasn't a good bet and I think 
it's something that it's important that we think about where those ideas come from and it's something that came up a lot in the research that I did as well actually that you know the status that we put on clinical work and the, the kind of the very low status we give to people who support other people who to mentor other people who to educate other people all of those kind of roles actually they're just as valid and they matter just as much and they have real meaning in them and although I think like a lot of people who've had to make career adjustments due to disability, there's sometimes a bit of a sense of grief about what they used to be. Um, there's also a sense of great hope for the future that actually I'm in a position I never expected to be in, but there are brilliant things that we can do in this situation as well. So that's um, the focus I try and have. Um, but I think it's okay to be sad about the difficult times too, and to acknowledge that, and then to um, get on with the good stuff as well. And if you could say something to someone that's listening that's having a really bad day, what would you say to them? I would say, first of all, that although it might not feel like it right now, there are people who care and there are people who want to help. And you might not find it straight away, but it is there and people will want to help you and you're not on your own. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, honestly, I, 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 don't, I know you don't like to hear these things I don't want to embarrass you but I think you are honestly very special and I think that it's very inspiring to listen to you know the things that you've done and the 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 immense kind of change that you've um you that you've created that you won't even some of it you won't ever even really appreciate so we really I want to say thank you for doing what you do and um it's it's truly is appreciated and and I, I think you're yeah very inspiring so thank you. Thank you. And the feeling is mutual um, in that I, I love the work that you're doing as well. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you. As I feel like I say at the end of all of these conversations, I'm so thankful and so inspired for, for you to take the time uh, to talk to us. Please make sure you check out the show notes, get information about Rosie and also about the Vet Life helpline. And as always, um, please head over to our social media platforms um, to give us a little like, follow and share. And to learn more about what VTX does generally, then pop over to our website, which is www.vtx-cpd.com. Thanks again to everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.